Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams, and today we're going back to Thursday, the 20th of August, 1857. That was a day of disaster, mass death and a miraculous survival in Sydney when, in driving rain, fierce wind and heavy seas, the clipper Dunbar was dashed against the rocks at South Head. Launched in November 1853, Dunbar was a fast, modern, first-class passenger and cargo sailing ship that could make the journey from England to Australia in under three months. Dunbar set out from Plymouth on Sunday, the 31st of May, 1857. Its captain, James Green, was well-respected, well-liked, and he well knew what he was about, this skipper having taken this very clipper to Australia just the previous year. There were 122 souls on this voyage. 63 were passengers, men, women, and children. Some were emigrants looking for a new start down under, but many were long-time colonists who were returning home to Sydney. Dunbar had 59 crew, including 20-year-old Irish-born sailor James Johnson. Though young, he'd already been working at sea half his life and had sailed on numerous ships. That included one voyage to Melbourne, though this was James's first time on Dunbar and his first visit to Sydney. Dunbar carried cargo valued at £72,000, and this included bulls, horses and sheep. The voyage around the Cape of Good Hope, across the Indian Ocean and along the Great Southern Bight was uneventful. No one died and no babies were born. Dunbar reached Bass Strait in mid-August and Captain Green and his crew carefully guided the vessel past King Island through these treacherous waters. No doubt the sailors knew the stories of ships that had come to grief here, not least Kataraki, lost a dozen years earlier with 400 souls, as we heard in the 4th of August episode. Dunbar made its way up the eastern coast, passing Cape Howes Light on the border of the colonies of Victoria and New South Wales. By then, the weather had deteriorated a little. It was hazy and raining, though the night and following day passed well. Early on Thursday evening, the 20th of August, 1857, the 81st day of the voyage, Dunbar's captain and crew sighted Botany Bay. There wasn't long to go now. In just another dozen or so miles, the ship would reach Sydney Heads, and by morning, they'd be docked in Sydney Cove. As Dunbar sailed north, the weather worsened, the rain becoming heavier, the wind stronger, and the waves more mountainous. With full sails, Captain Green had the ship on a north-northeast bearing and was allowing plenty of leeway between the vessel and land. About an hour after passing Botany Bay, the crew saw the revolving light from the lighthouse at South Head, its beams only visible at intervals through the driving rain. Captain Green had now to decide whether to stand off the coast for the night or make his run into the shelter of Sydney Harbour. For some time, he chose the former, but as the gale worsened, he, at around 11 o'clock, gave the orders to square away, wear ship, and make for the harbour entrance. 
An able seaman and the second and third mate were posted on the forecastle to keep a lookout for the light and for the landmass of North Head. While they couldn't see North Head, the South Head light was visible out of the haze. It appeared to be on Dunbar's port side. That meant that the darkness dead ahead was the entrance to Sydney Harbour. All of a sudden, a mate shouted, Breakers ahead! To the horror of the captain and crew, the light was no longer off the port side, but right in front and above them. Captain Green had mistaken the gap, a series of massive cliffs just south of South Head, for the entrance to Sydney Harbour. The skipper called to his men, port your helm, which meant do everything to turn the ship to starboard. As the crew scrambled to avoid sailing straight into the gap, the vessel turned broadside to the shore and the wind and waves smashed Dunbar into the rocks. The vessel was helpless, pushed in, pulled out and pushed back in by the huge waves. Panicked passengers came up on deck in their nightclothes. These poor people screamed, prayed and died as waves washed them from the disintegrating decks and smashed them against the rocks. Dunbar's top mast collapsed, killing many more. There was no time to lower lifeboats, however, a crew member did fire a blue flare. Up this light went over the land, burning weakly in the rain and haze, unseen by Sydney's harbour pilots or anyone on what was then a sparsely populated coastline. Yet, up on South Head, the lighthouse keeper's dog sent something and suddenly started barking. The mutt's distress was so unusual that the keeper went outside, but he saw nothing through the gloom of rain and wind and mist. Sailor James Johnson was on Dunbar's poop deck just after it hit the rocks. He was knocked down by the first wave that breached the vessel and only saved himself by grabbing onto a rope. James then ran down into a cabin, climbed out a skylight and clung to Dunbar's chains alongside the ship as the vessel broke up all around him. Then James was swept into the sea and, grabbing at planks, was sucked into the darkness. Charles Wiseman was captain of the steamer Grafton and he'd spent 17 years trading between Sydney and the New South Wales north coast. He'd left the Clarence River on Wednesday evening and by Friday morning, about half past nine, he was entering Sydney Harbour. Captain Wiseman saw things floating in the water some distance off. At first he thought they must have belonged to a small coaster that had been wrecked. Steaming the Grafton closer, he saw how much wreckage was in the water and realised that it was a huge ship that had been lost. Arriving at Port Jackson, Captain Wiseman reported what he'd seen and what he'd suspected. By this time, rumours of bodies in the harbour were already spreading through the city. There was conjecture over which ship had been wrecked. Four were expected in port around this time. They were the Vocalist, the Anne, the Zemindar and Dunbar. A steamer was sent to Watson's Bay to investigate. Sydney was then home to just over 50,000 European settlers and a not insignificant percentage of these citizens headed out to South Head on this wintry Friday morning and in the 24 hours that followed, making the journey on foot, on horseback or by omnibus or cab. Some of these people were worried about friends, family and loved ones due in Sydney on one of the four ships we've just mentioned. Many others, though, were just drawn by ghoulish curiosity. A man named John Gorman, who'd serve as a jury member at the Dunbar inquest, was to testify, quote, I went out to the South Head on Friday afternoon about 3pm. 
On my arrival at the place known as The Gap, I saw a large crowd of people. In fact, the road all along was thronged. A correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald wrote, quote, We found the residents of that locality watching with great horror the dead and mutilated bodies as they were thrown upon the rocks, the succeeding waves washing off again the naked remains. There were men, women and children. Their number was variously estimated at from 20 to 50, but it was difficult to ascertain the number as the bodies were thrown up on the ledge of the rocks and again taken off by the violence of the surf. Other bodies, many of them also naked because their flimsy nightclothes had been torn off during the sinking, were washing up all over the harbour. In addition to these human victims, two bulls washed ashore at Middle Harbour. This narrowed it down because only the Anne and Dunbar were known to be bringing livestock. Then, a mailbag bearing Dunbar's name was found, along with possessions in the name of a known passenger and fittings cast with Dunbar's crest. That made it official. Dunbar had been wrecked. Some 122 people were thought to have been aboard, and not a single survivor had been found. All Friday and then on Saturday morning, steamers and police boats inspected the harbour's waters and shorelines. Middle Harbour was lined with wreckage, cargo and corpses. There were a dozen dead people discovered at Manly, including Captain Green. Officials and volunteers collected these corpses and parts of bodies and brought them to the city's dead houses. There, grieving Sydney folk tried to identify their people. On Saturday, the Sydney Morning Herald and Empire newspapers printed numerous editions. The Herald even produced a special supplement which included hour-by-hour updates. By late that morning, thousands of people lined the cliffs of the Gap. Gruesome doesn't begin to describe it because there were no longer intact bodies in the water below, just heads, torsos and limbs that had been mauled by sharks and destroyed by the rocks. But while spectators were watching the remains of the dead, an intact, uninjured and living man was watching them in frustration from a rock shelf 200 feet below. James Johnson would tell the inquest of his survival, quote, After I found myself upon the rook, my senses returned, but I could hear nothing except the noise of the sea. The first thing I saw in the morning was the dead bodies floating in the sea. I saw that I was the only person there. I was about 10 yards above the level of the sea. The spray washed the rook upon which I was sitting, but it was not at all slippery. I was not in danger of being washed away. I had a blue shirt on, a singlet and a pair of drawers. I have met with only one injury, a mere scratch upon my knee. James Johnson's escape from Dunbar was miraculous, but now he feared he'd starve to death. On that Friday, he tried to signal several boats coming into Sydney Harbour, including Captain Wiseman's steamer Grafton, but no one had seen him. As crowds assembled far above, James moved along the rocks, and by Saturday, he could see the people, but no one could see him. Then, at 11 on Saturday morning, someone spotted him waving a handkerchief and let out a cry. A live man on the rocks! There he is! There he is! A brave young Icelandic man volunteered to be lowered the 200 feet by rope to James, who was then hauled up. Though tired and hungry, the sole survivor was unscathed and in remarkably good condition. He was taken to a nearby hotel and given spirits. 
There, James told the story of what had happened to Dunbar, and this was soon repeated in the afternoon newspaper updates. An inquest began the following Monday. It heard from James Johnson, Captain Wiseman, and people involved in the retrieval and identification of the dead who'd so far been plucked from the water and the shorelines. The jurors were told of the difficulties of entering Sydney Harbour, especially in bad weather at night, and how the gap could fool even experienced mariners. The jury concluded, quote, There may have been error in judgment in the vessel being so close to the shore at night in such bad weather, but the jury do not attach any blame to Captain Green or his officers. What the jury did think was its duty was to put on record that the present pilot arrangements for the harbour were inadequate and that the government should take action. The New South Wales colonial government did take action, starting a pilot service in which cutters were stationed off the heads, with crews living aboard so that they could assist vessels coming into the harbour day or night. The same afternoon the inquest finished, Monday the 24th of August, Sydney came to a near standstill as the funeral procession of coaches moved through the city streets. Thousands of spectators gathered on the route and at Camperdown Cemetery, where burials were performed for some of those who'd been identified. Those who so far remained unknown, 22 in all, were put to rest in a single mass grave. Four mourners stood beside this big burial plot, including James Johnson. The Sydney Morning Herald reported of what had become a nighttime service, quote, Though this time was not chosen for the funeral ceremony, perhaps the calmness of the dim moonlight night, during which the dead were laid in rest, was not an unsuitable association to the impressiveness of the occasion. James Johnson's horrific experience didn't end that night. He was detained by the police for the next few weeks and pressed into service to identify badly decomposing remains found across the harbour. James Johnson would soon move to Newcastle where he was given a job as a lighthouse keeper at Nobby's Head. He married a woman named Mary and they'd go on to have five children. In 1866, James Johnson again made the newspapers in circumstances that were stranger than fiction. On the 12th of July that year, the paddle steamer Carrawa founded in Newcastle Harbour in bad weather and only one of 61 souls aboard was saved. This was a sailor named Frederick Hedges who, clinging to a plank, was washed half-drowned against a harbour buoy, where he was pulled from the water and to safety by none other than James Johnson. James Johnson was to live long enough to see his salvation from the Dunbar given the sort of dramatic treatment that we're very accustomed to in the 21st century. In early September 1887, almost 30 years to the day after the disaster, Sydney saw the premiere of the stage drama The Wreck of the Dunbar. Put on by famous stage actor-manager Alfred Dampier and his daughter Lily, this production anticipated James Cameron's Titanic by embellishing the real-life disaster with a love triangle involving a villain. The play presented James as the hero, even though he was renamed Ralph, and there were many dramatic liberties taken. A quarter of a century later, James was still alive when that play was adapted into a feature film. 1912's The Wreck of the Dunbar was headlined by our first movie star, Louise Lovely, who'd soon after go to Hollywood and become a silent film sensation. 
While the play had the actual disaster happen offstage for obvious reasons, the film's centerpiece was the spectacular sinking and rescue, with these sequences even filmed on location at The Gap. It wasn't recorded whether James Johnson, who was then 75 and living in Sydney, got along to a cinema to see a film version of himself being plucked to safety from that rock shelf. James Johnson passed away at his home in Dulwich Hill in April 1915 at the age of 78, having lived almost three score years after all his fellows had perished that night on Dunbar. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. 